The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot. I'm the publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Our special guest today is Kevin Bambro. Now, you and I have engaged a little bit back and forth over the last month and a half or so, but you and I actually don't know each other. And oftentimes when I have different guests on, it's the first time I talk with them. So set the stage for everybody as I always like to start these conversations about who you are and your background overall. Well, thanks. It's nice to, to meet you. Pleasure to be on. Uh, maybe just a, a quick summary. I started basically uh, as a disillusioned 20-year-old, flipping different careers, flipping different degree options, gave up on traditional schooling and decided to start studying the markets, uh, mainly because I was predicting a, uh, a bubble forming in the NASDAQ, wanted to take advantage of the upside, and then ultimately uh, spent a lot of time researching, predicting that the next big bull market would be a commodity bull market. Uh, started entering into long positions there, uh, shorting the market, uh, the broader market, the NASDAQ, and uh, eventually housing stocks and such. Got introduced to uh, Eric Sprott and found myself on Bay Street, sort of uh, something I never thought would happen. Uh, grew up uh, with a traditional sort of blue collar type uh, background where, you know, in, in my house, we, we spoke of brokers as being used stock salesmen and had a rather negative opinion of them and their contribution to society. But uh, due to the, the craziness in the world and the way I predicted things were going to be playing out over the long run, I thought focusing on trying to trade and uh, invest in the cycles and the volatility would probably serve me well. And uh, I really enjoyed, uh, I have a bit of ADD. I really enjoy the enjoyed and still enjoy the ability to just sort of look around at whatever you find interesting and try to find, uh, try to predict the future, basically. Uh, having been introduced to Eric Sprott, I started as an analyst there, uh, became market strategist, eventually started my own private equity fund because I wanted to get away from uh, the daily market grind, uh, like you say, being on holidays and just always feeling like you're on the incredible pressure of running a hedge fund. So I started focusing more on the long-term uh, private equity style resource investing. I put together a five-year track record of around 28% compounded uh, and then ultimately left Sprott in near the end of 2013, uh, predominantly because of a just a general disagreement of what products we were going to launch and where we were going to go and how we were going to sell those products. And uh, uh, when I joined Sprott, 
uh, Eric Sprott was the sort of, it was a very small company and Eric Sprott was a sole leader and he was very adamant. He won me over, uh, saying that there's only one thing you need to worry about is making money for the clients and focusing on selling good products. And I, I felt at the time that we were sort of, uh, diversifying as Eric used to call it and, uh, selling things that I couldn't put my name uh, alongside. And, um, ultimately, uh, decided to retire, spent the last five years, uh, or sorry, seven years now, a little bit more, uh, you know, just focused on my own trading and then particularly picked off the commodity bull market, saw the opportunity with all the supply, uh, getting taken offline due to COVID, realizing that this would be the start of a supply shock and that the Fed and the, you know, central banks of the world would do their, their typical response, which is print and bail and, uh, uh, you know, cause inflation. And so here we are today. So I want to hit a little bit on this point about creating products that are good for end clients, because I'm, I tend to be cynical. I think most end clients, the best thing they can do is not necessarily focus on what they're investing in, but uh, how long they're investing in it, right? In other words, kind of the short-term versus longer-term way of thinking about investing, especially when arguably, the I would argue that consistency is very much an illusion when it comes to markets. We know that the best managers, and I'm sure you, you can back this up, tend to have kind of lumpy returns where it seems like they have nothing going on and then they have a massive alpha hour performance burst because some macro theme is working. Right? And we can talk about that even in the context of uranium. But from the standpoint of investor psychology, do you find that over time people have gotten less sticky in the way they have a thesis for a particular investment idea? Talk about sort of the short-termism that you think may be happening here. Well, I think uh, in general, uh, there's an incredible short-term focus uh, by the trading sort of people who invest for a living rather than, um, but at the same time, you know, the street's done a great job of selling people on buy and hold. And, you know, you just, you just got to stay in the market because over the long run, it's going to perform. And they never talk about the periods where, you know, the market goes down, you know, 70 or 80 or 90% over a 10 year or five year span. And it takes, you know, 30 years to get back. So it's, it's sort of like a, a double edged sword of people sort of, uh, fund managers scrambling and sort of jumping on what works, crowded trades. And then at the same time, uh, there's been a real development, uh, over the last decade or more of moving to ETFs, which are, you know, relatively brain dead and just convincing people to sit in these various sectors. And in particular for the resource sector, it's really, caused a lot of change because there's very few managers writing checks anymore to resource companies to help fund production. ETFs don't typically write a check and fund businesses. So some industries are getting starved by that phenomenon. I'm talking specifically about, say, uh, the emerging you know, junior resource sector, emerging producers. Uh, they've run out of, they've got way le less options today of where they can go to get financing. And they've been relatively ignored in the marketplace. And so, ah. uh, as a result, like, you know, back in when I used to work at Sprott, companies would line up and come in, you know, once or twice a year. You know, a lot, we, we'd see a lot of traffic through our offices because Toronto was sort of was the hub of uh, resource financing along with, you know, London. But nowadays, there's very few active fund managers of size that, that actually meet with companies and write them checks. People allocate money to, you know, 
an energy ETF or a mining ETF or a gold ETF, but it just it doesn't really result in and it hasn't resulted in money going into the hands of companies to be ready to bring on production as uh, as this commodity bull market has sort of kicked in. And I'm really I really look at things, by the way, from a, a commodity resource focus, because that cyclicality and sort of timing the entry and exit is how I've basically made a living and then, you know, preserve my retirement. I mean, I think the the ETF providers will will do that because they recognize, unfortunately, that assets follow performance. So if you have a a sector fund, a thematic fund that is out of favor and they're bleeding assets, they feel like they need to do something just to keep the damn thing alive. So what do they do? They figure, well, let's put some Bitcoin in there, right? Let's put something else that's working, right? So so while it's irrational, there is a there is a logic to it. I think from a business perspective. Well, I, I often allocate. I say I tell most people I allocate the bulk of my funds to ETF trading and timing. I like to. I like the fact that I don't take single stock risk in the resource sector. Not only are you taking single stock risk or a mine risk or environmental risk or country risk, geopolitical. Like there's so many issues that come up with uh, individual uh, mining companies. So it's it's few and far between that I go deep into some and I try to stick to jurisdictions where, you know, with the resource sector, it's it's actually one of the unique things about it is the way that um, it's basically guaranteed like no other sector to see margins collapse and all historical investment become very uh, undervalued or almost written off. And then when the sector picks up, all of a sudden, you see margins are guaranteed for some companies to explode and multiples to expand and interest and money to flow into the sector. So timing that and sort of looking for, you know, who did well in the last sector, which which asset was sort of ready to go, but just missed getting started or funded. Those are the ones that I go back to where things are well known and understood. And it's just a matter of uh investing in the company and it really is like a call option on the com- underlying commodity and waiting for uh, the right opportunity for it to get revalued again. Okay, so, so let's go with that because the commodities resources are notoriously cyclical. And as you pointed out, they're perhaps the most and purest form of boom bust type of trading and investing. Now, a lot of that has to do with leverage, right? Now, you're talking about very levered entities because obviously it takes a lot of uh, capital to mine to do whatever needs to be done to actually get the natural resources out of the ground. But how do you think about the role of leverage on an individual company basis for a commodity producer's ability to survive during those bust periods? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaiad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. I always tell people, first of all, is never invest in, re- in the resource sector using margin. You've got so much leverage, depending on which companies you're picking or ETFs even, uh, that you've got more than enough leverage to you know, make wildly fantastic profits and also destroy yourself if, if your timing's off. Um, you, know, you scale in, you scale out. A lot of companies uh, get ruined by leverage that they add on. 
uh, taking on debt, uh, you know, trying to be, you know, CEOs that are a little bit too optimistic about what they can accomplish. And the, uh, every up cycle, you know, every, the start of every bull market in, commod- in, a, in a commodity sector is uh, usually a, a period, of, we're entering a period of high inflation and massive uh, CapEx expansion, like the CapEx cost to build and bring on a mine and the operating cost ends up always being dramatically higher than what was expected. And so, uh, you know, adding leverage and hedges, I mean, there's a, there's so many companies that get destroyed because they, uh, you know, took on bank financing, agreed to hedge forward production at a set price, and then find that their costs are up, uh, they're not making any money, and they can't service their debt, and then they're they're wiped out. So I, I love that point, by the way, because that's that goes to this idea that there's there's always always hidden leverage behind every uh, investment, right? You've got your own margin, your own leverage, your own conviction, but then you've got the more dangerous leverage on the actual company you're investing in. So some areas of the marketplace you don't actually want to margin up because there's already quite a bit of margin in the underlying company. Right? I think few really kind of appreciate that. Okay, so so Kevin, again, you, you and I were DMing a bit, and you said that a lot of your History kind of led you to an understanding of manias, bubbles, bursts, and you know, kind of how that cycle keeps on repeating over and over again. And you know, these terms are thrown out a lot, but again, I don't think people really understand how to. I don't think they really understand how to analyze what part of the cycle we're in and why you have bubbles and bursts to begin with. So, talk us through the way that you think about cycle investing, right? And why these these amplifications of bulls and bears? Why do they take place to begin with? I mean, that's just, it's a bit of crowd behavior at the, at the origin, but maybe before I sort of touch into that, I'll just go back a little bit more to say what sort of got me thinking about this whole thing back in originally is I was focused. I remember just even as a young kid looking at, you know, thinking about money, you know, what, what is this? What's with the money? It just gets created. It's, it's coming off a printing press. Like what is going on with it? How come there's poverty? How come there's government deficits? You know, what is the big deal when you could just print money and trying to get my head around all of that? And so that led me to really do a deep dive into studying the history of, uh, of money and its real origins as, as commodity money, typically. And then all the different times, when you look back through history, all the times when different uh, you know, beliefs would develop in societies where you know, th- th- this time it's different, we can create fiat money or we can create, we create IOUs, um, uh, stock bubbles, all these things are just a, a different derivative on what started as commodity money and then and and then ultimately, you know, it blows up and, and you find that the fiat or the the paper currency is worthless and there's a rush to something else as that process unfolds. And so I guess that's the, the foundation. So let let's go with that a little bit. So all that ended with Bretton Woods, nineteen seventy one, getting off the gold standard, right? So and everything became fiat, right? So you and I have, have gone back and forth a little bit on this, but I think it would be fair to say that we sympathize with the cryptocurrency view that fiat is bullshit and that's what creates so many distortions and the end game of potentially a reset because of the sheer amount of debt and, and leverage in the system that fiat creates. But you and I also think alike in that cryptocurrencies may not be the answer. It's probably more of a legal answer. So I'm curious how you think about the role of money from its transition of commodity based to fiat based and what really is sort of a solution to to what's going on in the system here? Well, I think that there's a sort of two things. I guess to touch on the crypto part, um, when you think about the origin of money being typically commodity money and then government's involvement of creating it and breaking away and making fiat, 
was supposed to, you know, I guess the, the function should be really of, of government's involvement in money is to really be involved in taxation in order to make sure that there isn't a, a, a hyper concentration of wealth and, you know, try to keep the system sort of functioning in, in such that there's a, a healthy middle class and educated society. We move forward uh, together and not just a, a select few. And so uh, I look at the, the taxation as being a key element to what keeps fiat functioning. And we've got sort of away from that, especially in the Western world, where you know, you're running these massive deficits uh, and you're not funding it with a, a reallocation or redistribution anymore. You're just printing money, creating money to fund those uh, expenses. And ultimately, it's, it keeps leading to like these inflationary blow-offs. I always try to point out to people when I'm talking about crypto is that fiat money is underpinned by the taxation of our governments. They can, you know, if you want to keep a property, you've got to sell something or take a percentage of your earnings and convert it, or it has to be in fiat so that you pay them. And that, that gives an underpinning of value, whether it's capital gains, income tax, property tax, et cetera. So there's that sort of cycle of money flowing to the government back and forth. If they want deflation, they can create deflation. They just raise taxes. Just keep raising taxes. We'll get deflation. They could break the housing market. There's going to be other ramifications and and spillovers of that, like you know the the breaking of you know like we saw in the last cycle with the with the blow up of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the you know the the, the need to bail out the banks. That'll happen all over again. And they have to choose: Do you want the banking system to fail, or are you going to print and bail it out? But crypto is, in my mind, and. and you know, we've had a couple of discussions about why I think it's complete bullshit is because the ecosystem, if you picture the ecosystem itself, um, you've got all these coins and some are, you know, supposedly stable coins, but the majority are just, you know, made up coins. Sure, they have like a uniqueness to them and you have to, you know, some of them you have to, you know, waste energy in computers solving algorithms to create them. But at the end of the day, I look at that ecosystem, the entire ecosystem and picture What's required to feed that ecosystem? And, you know, you've got people working there, employees, you've got advertising dollars being spent. You've got all that's paid for with needs to be paid for with real money into the real world out of that ecosystem. The electricity, the computers, the office buildings, all of that requires money to flow out of that ecosystem to pay for things in the real world. And it's so that means it's entire, but it's entirely dependent then on new sales of coins and uh, exchanges and entities making fees and money flowing into the sector in order to feed what's flowing out. And that's what makes it the thing of one giant Ponzi, because at the core, as an industry, all crypto does is destroy energy. You know, it creates nothing. It's not like an, an in industry where, you know, you're, you're creating a product of any kind or service and there's a margin to be made in profits that can be redistributed and sent out. It's just one giant destroyer of, of value. There's no holding of value. Once you have a coin, you can never get the energy back that was sunk in, into its creation. And that's why it's going to ultimately implode. It, it marks for me the end of the fiat experiment. And the road back is going to be a very painful one to, to more sound money, sound spending, you know, discipline, governments i mean it's we're so far from that right now and the and the pain of inflation it's like you said it's it's going to be biblical and that that's what i believe it's going to be a biblical pain uh whether it's uh you know right now it's energy prices you know soon it's going to be you know grain and food prices 
on the taxation point, that's basically the entire argument of modern monetary theory. Of course, the problem there is that, as you noted, no politician ever wants to really tax to counter all the fiat being printed because the lobbyists have them in their back pocket, right? So there's an incentive mismatch on the theory of MMT. Taxation is the way to counter all the fiat profligate dollars that are being printed and then sort of the reality on the ground as far as the lawmakers go. That's, That's number one. Number two, Again, I would I would agree with you 100 percent on on everything you're saying there. I think that the argument, particularly around Bitcoin, is that this is something that replaces the banks. It's hard money. It's all this stuff. It's effectively, a form of of a quasi gold standard that maybe you can reinforce back on the system, which is really at the end of the day what created a more sound monetary system. But you're right. I mean, it's unclear how that ends up playing out, especially when you have so much fraud uh, in the space. So, so Kevin, you kind of alluded to uranium for a bit, and I think at a certain point you had uh, uranium eyes, which seems quite <laughs> painful. But, but, but I want you to lay out your thesis around the uranium space as it goes through this sort of cyclicality resurgence that we're starting to see here. Sure. Um, this is sort of my, my second swing at a, at a uranium bull market. Uh, back in my Sprott days, around I think it was around 2003, I first met with Cameco. Uh, they came, they're one of the largest producers of uranium in the world. And they had come into our offices uh, because they were marketing, selling off a, a gold asset, Cantera. Uh, and I started looking. That's what got me looking at uranium because it's such a small, unique market. Nobody really gives a shit about it. And it's really, that's what makes it so special is I say it's, it's the weirdest commodity market because no one cares about it. It's so small, but yet it's so essential that the industry that consumes it will pay almost anything for it when it's in short supply. And sorry, can you expand on that, on that size issue? When you say small, give, give us a sense of what, what does that actually mean? Small relative to what? What, oh, at, what is small quantified? So at the bottom of, a, of, of the bear market in, in uranium, which was basically March of, of uh, 2020, and similarly, it got to a similar size, like we're talking 7 to $10 billion maybe. Uh, and and you've got to remember, this is an industry that provides 11% of global power. Like it's of electricity, not power, uh, but it's 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 massively important, and it's and the reason why nobody cares is the industry enters into long term contracts with with miners. Typically, they they mess around in the spot market, and during the bear markets, they just sort of rely on spot market, don't contract, and they sort of pick off pick off weak pounds and and, and cheap pounds. But um, if you think about the price of electricity. Uh, a hundred dollars. So uranium's around fifty-eight, fifty-nine today. It could move up a hundred dollars and only add about half a cent a kilowatt hour to the cost of uranium power. Sorry, of nuclear power. It's it could have very, very dramatic moves. And last cycle, it went from, you know, uh, I think the industry went from say uh, I'm going to make up numbers, but somewhere around like seven billion to seventy billion, maybe more. Uh, the the price of uranium went from a very low of seven eight dollars a pound. I I got involved around eleven dollars a pound, and could see a shortage developing, and said I don't know if it's going to be five years or ten years, but it's going to go back to its inflation adjusted highs, which will encourage production and supply the industry again. And that that number was was targeted to be around one hundred and forty dollars last cycle. This cycle we're starting in the in the low twenties. Uh, you know, because of COVID, there was a good supply shock. Cameco and uh, uh, Prom, uh, two of the largest producers, shut down production as well as some other minor producers due to COVID. 
Uh, it's, it, it started a supply shock. And at the same time, uh, we had other uh, um, dynamics at play, which ultimately I say it's going again to the inflation adjusted high. This time it'll be 200, maybe even higher by, by the time this bull market stops. Is the lead time from uranium extraction to actually use longer than other commodities? Because, uh, you know, you often see these these stats about how it takes, you know, X number of years for a nuclear power plant to go up and obviously you need a lot of you know, regulatory oversight and government support there. Right. But uh, in thinking about sort of the lead time of, of when it actually gets used, is it among the longest from a cycle perspective? Yeah. The uranium, as far as commodity markets go and, and, and mining, they all have similar um, characteristics of those long lead times. You know, one of the rules of thumb, they say it's like 10 years is sort of from the, you know, when you first start with a, you know, a piece of land and you're going to start drilling it and, you know, prove it up and get the engineering and the permitting and develop it. And, you know, 10 years on average for a lot of commodities from start to finish. Sometimes it's way longer because it doesn't happen in one given cycle. Uh, some uranium mines can be brought on much quicker, but in generally speaking, I would say that the uranium industry, the uranium production industry has all the characteristics of your typical resource production, but, but more dramatically, it's more dramatic because permitting a uranium mine is one of the most difficult. It's probably the most difficult mine to permit anywhere. Like in most jurisdictions, it's the most difficult mine to permit, uh, all over the world. There's great uranium mines that have been banned they say there's no way we the, the local community does not want to risk uranium production uh you know leaching and and uh environmental damage into their water table etc so the cycle is is very long and the price uh swings could be very large and i i think it's fair to say that you can't really have energy diversification and energy independence unless you include uranium in that mix right because no other source of power, whether it's wind, solar, can be consistent enough, whereas uranium arguably may end up being kind of the greenest of all relative to the output. Well, what, well that was one of the things that really got me sort of primed up and, and focused again on getting ready to. I, I actually was expecting more of a washout in 2022. Sorry, in 2020, I expected some bankruptcies. Uh, the, the uranium industry was in real trouble, and it was still just sort of waking up. Uh, getting out of the, the shadow of, uh, you know, the Fukushima disaster in Japan, uh, which wasn't a nuclear disaster, really. It was really, a, you know, it's a, uh, an earthquake, an undersea earthquake and a tsunami and, you know, a badly designed, badly placed facility uh, that, that, that took a hit as a result. Uh, but that caused, led to the bear market. And I was looking for the final washout in 2020 when COVID hit. Uh, and one of the reasons why I became bullish on the sector as a whole is because of uh, the decision by most of the automakers to say we're going to go basically all electric vehicle production. Um, you've got world leaders like uh, Elon Musk, you know, out there saying, "Oh, you know, we just need to double the electricity output of the world in the next twenty years in order to facilitate electric vehicles." And would you know, for people like me that do like to do math and look at resources and look at you know, what are the demands? What, what are we going to have to produce to achieve that? It's mind-blowing. The amount of copper that goes into vehicles, uh, transmission lines, like just to try to imagine we're going to double the global grid over 20 years. You just start looking at the different metals involved and, and the batteries and uh, the specialty metals in there. And then on the whole, 
you look at the electricity market and you're like, okay, well, what's going to be the fuel source of, uh, you know, this doubling of the grid. And at the same time, we're trying to fight climate change. It's like, how can you fight climate change and increase the grid by double over the next 20 years? You're going to try to reduce coal. Like the numbers are mind blowing. And the people who are pro, like I'm pro solar, I'm pro wind. I actually created a company called Sprott Power that we built up and sold. It was a wind and some small solar projects in Canada. Um, very bullish on the sector. It's great in the right location and the right, you know, right wind regime, the right sun, the right climate. Great. It's a great addition. But you need to have a storage solution if you're going to, you know, you can't get your solar at night. A lot of places the wind dies down at night um, or you get into, into, into spells where you don't have enough wind and then it creates trouble for your grid. And once you start adding in storage solutions, uh, the return on energy invested in that sector goes way down. And, we're, and as I said, we're trying to fight this coal problem. You, you look at what's happening with Russia and, and getting dependent on uh, Europe, getting dependent on gas. It emboldened them. It felt, I think, it, I think the decision to rely on Russian gas 100% gave Putin the idea that he could get away with taking over Ukraine and be able to just, you know, that it would just, he would get a pass. And so when I look at the numbers, you got 10%, uh, sorry, 11% of global power comes from uranium. In Ontario, uh, where I live, we're about 50%. Uh, you know, some countries have, 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 are fully in, others are barely in. But I think that we're going to try to go to probably 30% of our grid, which is doubling apparently over the next 20 years, even though it, it won't be achieved, by the way, we won't be able to double the grid in 20 years. It's just, it's not going to happen. Um, but best efforts will be to do that. And I sort of foresee that we're going to try to increase the uh, nuclear power industry probably by, you know, five to six fold. And when you look down to uranium now, you're like, okay, well, the uranium industry doesn't even produce enough uranium today. We've been working off inventories and oversupply that was built up because of uh, the, the the rapid shutdown, like that initial shutdown of uh, all of Japan's reactors post Fukushima, that created this massive oversupply and inventory build for years. And so we're still working that off. We're way short on, you know, supply, primary supply versus current demand. And we're going to try to exponentially uh, grow the industry. And for me, it just means it's just an absolute certainty that the price of uranium is going to go way higher uh, and stay up way longer than what people believed. And so it's and it's going to become um, a sector that people want to have a little bit in their portfolio. I absolutely love that because that's that's the proper way of doing second order thinking about investing. So if you're bullish on electric vehicles, you don't actually play it necessarily by being with electric vehicle manufacturers. You do it by playing the grid and uranium in particular, right? Because the supply dynamics are so much worse than anybody really thinks through. Oh, and nobody thinks about it. Nobody looks at it. And that, that sort of brings me to another point that I like to always mention to people. People are like, well, why? Why does nobody care? Why is no, like, why did this industry get, get abandoned? And it's, it's very simple. Uh, the brokerage firms around the world that cover stocks, there was just no money in it. They're not going to pay an analyst, you know, to look at a little sector that isn't doing M&A, that bear, the stocks are illiquid and barely traded. Uh, they're not capital raising because nobody wants to give them any money. And so it's just completely ignored until such time as it starts to grow, which it has. And then the little brokers, right? the little brokers that focus on resources get in there. And then bit by bit, the bigger companies get, you know, bigger companies, bigger brokers get involved. And ultimately, 
what happened in the, uh, I believe it was in the, the late 60s and early 70s, uh, energy companies, the big oil and gas companies and some of the big mining companies decided, whoa, this is the future. Like there was, there was forecasts back then that nuclear was going to be this massive contributor to uh, global power. And then that got sort of derailed uh, by the, the Three Mile Island incident. And that put a chill on everything. And, of course, cheap gas. So I think the same cycle is going to happen again where, you know, uh, you know whether it's the Exxon Mobiles or the Shells or whatever, they're, they're going to be coming at this thing and, and saying we got to own, we might as well own one of these big, you know, mining operations or, or be involved in the sector in some capacity. Everyone, please make sure you follow Kevin, as you can tell, very knowledgeable in a lot of different areas with quite a bit of experience. And on that experience point, Kevin, real quick, I got a DM from somebody as speaking, uh, Zach is his name. And he was at, wanted me to ask you, what were some of the key lessons you learned in working with uh, Eric Sprott? What, what kind of stuck with you? Well, we had a couple of different styles. One thing uh, that I'd say uh, Eric really instilled in me is, is just like this drive to try to read everything every day. Um, you know, I had a Bloomberg terminal back then and access to every single news feed in the world. And I love just you know, trying to get those little tidbits, those little things that are the indicators that keep you on the, the theme you're on. Uh, you know, you don't want to just drink the Kool-Aid. You got to always be watching for change and like, does this matter? Does that matter? Is something happening here? You know, um, trying to predict the future. And then, you know, Eric was a very, is a very different investor than, than most, uh, you know, very high risk, high volatility funds over his career, but like, you know, Warren Buffett like numbers uh, for Canada. And he uh, he always used the term diversification, and uh, you know was just an all in kind of guy. We, we we had clients that would be like, okay, we're only going to give you a little bit of my money because you might blow up, kind of thing. Uh, you might have, you know, it's just incredible volatility that they can't hold on to. But uh, you know, for for Eric and, and I'm the same way. I'm like, you know, March 2020, I went like all in. I'm like, okay, uranium, gold, copper, you know, and then I'll just cycle around you know, the edges, molybdenum, you know, weird little things that that was a big driver. And then, um, uh, I'd say, uh, I'd say that that's probably the number one thing. And that just the, the work ethic, you know, striving, like wanting to, it, it was a game, you know, one of the, the big takeaways that, that I, and what kind of led me actually to walk away is sort of watching the evolution of somebody become a billionaire and, uh, you know, the game trying to like be on that, you know, always trying to win, want to having the number one, like we had the number, I think we had the top 10 track record in the world at one point on one of the funds and the top five, uh, five-year record in the world on another fund. And, uh, you know, just the drive to perform was not about personal wealth, uh, anymore. I mean, there was, you know, he, he obviously did want to become a billionaire. Like a lot of people look for a, a number, just kind of like when you walk away from a video game or a pinball machine and back in our day, you're like, okay, let's, let's roll it. Okay. I'm done. I don't need to play this anymore. But, but just trying to decide like, you know, what, what are you trying to do here? What, what is the goal? What is the outcome that you're, you're seeking? And, uh, I guess for me, I decided I, the stress of playing the game with other people's money and, and dealing with managing the, it's one thing to manage your own money and manage your investments. It's another thing to have to manage your clients who, if you're in an open-ended fund, they typically want to take away money when you want to raise cash and uh, you know, you're looking to deploy cash. They're taking it away and they're giving you money when things are expensive. And the stress of you know, going from that love-hate relationship with 
You know, you even get it on Twitter with your followers. I noticed that I get a lot of DMs thanking me, and that makes me feel like I should take profits in what I own and what I've been talking about. And then when I'm loathed and hated and insulted, uh, that's when I when I double down and, and put more money to work. And I'd rather do it. I'd rather do it for myself because the pain of losing other people's money is just. I just found it way too stressful. Yeah, there's a lot of things that hit home for me on that point. So one thing is, as you're talking about Sprott and yourself, I'd argue that being the best is a personality trait, right? There's there's something to somebody's personality that wants them to constantly be on top, even when they've already made it, right? I think the best entrepreneurs in the world have that innate sort of desire to be like that. And you're 100% right on running other people's money. Listen, I always make this point that you never want to catch a falling knife, but the truth is, the biggest returns come from actually catching the falling knife. Mean reversion is the best way to get the most returns, right? But most people, especially when you're an ETF wrapper, especially, the truth is most people are momentum horse, right? They just want to chase that which is going up rather than think through, now's the time to actually allocate because this thing is bombing out for whatever reason because the cycle is not in its favor for a moment in time, right? And the biggest money is always made of the turns, not in the middle of the trends, right? Which always takes a leap of faith and takes that personality to want to accept the volatility but to your point most individual investors when you're managing other people's money that's a brutal game to play i I appreciate you saying that because i'm kind of living through it in what's been a tough period for me personally professionally but one that i do believe also is due for a turn very imminently right so i can relate very much that we'll be back after a quick break Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Well, basically, you know, I took a view that everybody is going to change and go pro-nuclear. And the underlying reason why is money. It's we need power. You know, we're plugging in electric vehicles. Demand keeps going up all over the world. And high prices change attitudes. When there's cheap gas and cheap alternatives, no one cares. And the other big driver is going to be the environmental side of things, you know. The idea that gas is going to be a transition fuel is is ludicrous. You know, we're setting up for decades and decades of massive, massive gas consumption and massive, like, although lower, still massive CO2 production. I mean, it's not green. It's so far from green. It's not even funny. And still, to this day, we have increased coal burning around the world. So despite all the efforts, all the money and massive effort into solar and wind, we're still burning more coal every year. We're still burning more gas every year. And the only way when you do, when you actually sit down and do the math, the only way to try to provide price stability and deal with inflation and provide stable power for industries is to go big into nuclear. And on top of it, it's definitely the only way we're going to fight climate change. Like if you believe in climate change, you've got to be a big supporter of nuclear because it's it's so much better than coal and gas. Like it's just not even close. So we're just we're just short on time, and I wanted to make sure that I uh, commented on as I talked about how no one gave a shit about the uranium sector. This is something that people can get from me, uh, you know, by following me and looking at some of the different weird. Because I've I've 
done very well in a lot of weird little metals over the time and weird little industries. And it's amazing because people don't really drill down that often into things like, you know, uh, tungsten and tin. And one of the ones that I quite like, it's actually the fastest growing metal in terms of demand in the world is molybdenum. And it's, it's people are like, what the fuck is molybdenum? Anyway, it is uh, a metal that you have to add to steel in order to make it stronger. So if you want lighter, lighter vehicles, you want to use less steel, you need to make it stronger. And that's why molybdenum demand is growing so much. Plus, for the oil and gas industry, uh, when you're doing deep drilling, like once the price is spiking, we've seen, you know, drill rig counts are starting to go up. There's going to be this big push into trying to drill deeper, uh, longer wells, you know, the deep horizontals, uh, incredible heat and pressure. You need to have a lot of molybdenum in all the drilling equipment. And that causes a, a big spike in the price. The price, you know, again, it's, it's cyclical. Last cycle, it went from six to 36 or something. Now it's sort of in the mid teens. You know, I've invested in a company called Greenland Resources uh, in, in Greenland, which is a company that had a permit last cycle. It didn't get across the line before the bear market molybdenum came. But it's the type of thing where I look at it and I'm like, yeah, there's there's a you know CapEx involved, but the market cap is nothing. And that's why a lot of people don't care. You know, 70 something million dollar market cap. But it's the type of company that could ramp up production and, and be you know 20 times its value when people do care and they will care because europe is consumes 25 percent of the world's molybdenum and produces none heavily reliant on china and this reminds me of back in the day when i first started investing in coal china used to be a big exporter of coal in the early 2000s and slowly they just started because of their own internal growth they said oh we're not exporting coal we're now importing coal and that switch of china going from selling you know 120 million tons a year of coal to the rest of the world to consuming a similar amount from the rest of the world really put a strain on world ports, on shipping. Uh, it just completely changed the dynamic and caused the price of coal to skyrocket. And we invested in metallurgical coal back then, something I'm doing again, because if you want what a lot of people don't realize is if you want uh, steel, if you want wind turbines, if you want to expand the electrical grid, you need steel. You want infra- you're going to have big infrastructure spans. We're going to replace. We're going to go with high speed rail. We're going to go with bridges. You need steel. You can't have steel without metallurgical coal or what they call coking coal. Very few companies, a pure place to play it. But I'm working on some. I'm looking at them. I'm looking at directly financing some of them myself. You know, things like these niche little markets are where you can. If you've got patient capital, you put I put my money in, and I'm like, I don't know when, but I know Europe's going to need this big time. Right? It's, you know, I know that what's probably going to happen is a 10x or a 20x over the next five to 10 years. And sometimes it happens in two or three. Sometimes it takes seven. But either way, if I get my 10 and 20x, I don't really care. And that's those are the types of uh, long-term call options you get when you invest in, in, in these cyclical companies at the right time. And fortunately, there's still um, time to invest in some of these things. I mean, typically all the commodities go at once, but it's nice. I, I always kind of you, know, you position yourself into what you know and understand the best and are most bullish on near term. But as you take profits, you're going to think, okay, where am I going to cycle those profits? And that's what I think is going to continue to happen because of uh, the, the spike in oil and gas, the cash flows, the profits that come to oil and gas investors. You know, these are the types of people that are going to buy gold and silver and just think, you know, something. I'm going to buy some gold and silver and store it with my profits, or I'm going to invest in these other uh, industries that seem to be emerging and, and developing a good uptrend. 
Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. All right, so l- l- last question on my end, Kevin. So I, I named the space uh, "bullshit means bear market." <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, yeah. from 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 your experience, this will be the last question, you know, for everybody here also. But what what narrative is the biggest bullshit going on right now? And do you think that this decline still has more to go? We're talking now independent of uranium and kind of longer term pieces. I'm more talking about the the here and now. What where's the biggest bullshit, and what m- makes you most worried about the nature of risk assets here? Uh, I just say in general, I see a lot of parallels in this market. And I went on record like, you know, back in the late fall saying I was pounding the table like we are peaking in the NASDAQ, we're peaking in tech. I think that the the Robin Hood and youth investors, like I spend a lot of time, uh, a lot of my uh, my old friends now have, you know, university age children. Uh, we get together for dinners and you know the stop topic of investing, and they, they they like to talk and pick my brain about what happened and what, what what I did over my career, and I often talk to them about the Nasdaq dot com bubble and the parallels to you know even like the Teslas and like just the valuations are insane and commodity energy prices are going to dig in and crush those earnings competition like I mean the idea of valuing something like Tesla at you know it's it's almost it was almost worth you know almost all the other car companies in the world combined. And I just think like they're all coming. They're all going to be producing great electric vehicles. Some of them have better technology in some aspects now that are product control. They've got facilities that they could convert into producing electric vehicles a lot easier than just ramping up production. And they're used to dealing with all the quality control measures and the the warranty issues and all those things that are going to come to haunt a company like a Tesla. The dot-com era, there were so many blow-ups. Yeah, you know, people want to argue that well, Amazon worked out great. Yeah, well, for every Amazon, everything that worked out like Amazon, that you still went down 80% and you'd, you'd claw it back and made a great return if you held it for 20 years. We're going to see some losses here. We're going to see more and more losses uh, in the financial sector, more struggles. You know, you're a bear on housing. I'm, I'm a bear, relatively speaking. You know, in, in an inflationary environment, everything's going to go up. If it goes up, fine, it, it could go up. I'm not going to argue housing prices can't go up. But if it goes up, you know, oil's going to 500 and, you know, Big Macs are going to cost 30 bucks, you know, in the next 10 years. Like that's, that's the type of environment that's going to, that's required in order to keep the housing prices going up because the relative value between the two are just out of whack. Again, everybody that was here for the uh, the full hour, appreciate certainly the time and those, again, who are constantly coming back every single day as I try to put the time and effort to bring in different guests, given that I'm not getting paid for any of these conversations. Everyone, please make sure you follow Kevin here. Uh, hopefully follow me if you're not already doing so. Kevin, uh, really do appreciate this hour. I'm glad we got the space thing figured out. And at some point, I do want to talk to you because you kind of alluded to this idea that we both have maybe some similar upbringings as far as uh, the way our parents approach life. So we'll uh, yeah, for sure. we'll circle we'll circle back on that. But I'm, I'm humbled yeah, by I, time I, here. I really enjoy your work, by the way. You're, it's refreshing to see someone who's sort of be unfiltered. And uh, I think we need more of that out there as some, you know, truth being said. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Listen, I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur like like you, right? The difference is, you know, I, I have not made it to the extent that I want to make it. And a large part of that's also based on cycles, right? And I know that first and foremost, right? It's not about anything as far as one's effort. It's also about kind of the timing of when you happen to launch a product. And oftentimes I find success is much more driven by the macro environment than your micro efforts, right? But you got to keep on trying and keep on trying to build that ship in a shit storm, right? Until the storm passes. So I appreciate that. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Thank you, Kevin, and uh, I'll do this again tomorrow. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice.
the views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.